This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE Online Pass. Try it for free for a month. Go to www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or its speakers. For full terms and conditions, see the MCLE website. I'm discussing our litigation strategies and tips. Um, I'm just really happy to be part of this panel because I think often there's a misconception that mid-income clients don't have these serious legal and complex legal uh, situations such as you know your wealthier clientele, and that's simply not true. I think the worst custody case I was involved with, the first attorney, he was a criminal attorney who was trying to get into family law and saw that the parties didn't make a ton of money and said, well, this is, you know, this would be a great trial case. And it was not. And after a three or four day trial, when the judge said this was one of the worst custody, you know, cases that she's had to deal with and she didn't know what she was going to do. You know, I really, from the get go, the guy who thought the first try really just thought, you know, they don't have a lot of money. Anyone can handle this. And so I'm really happy that this panel is certainly bring focus to the fact that finances do not necessarily equate level of difficulty on a case. Um, a lot of clients who come with you in this income bracket often ask about limited assistance representation. Um, they, you know, they really think that this is the best use of their money. They might only have so many, they may have budgeted themselves a certain amount of funds that they are going to spend on legal fees. And certainly like Sandy said, when you have a discussion with them at the very beginning, about your pay structure, about what a retainer is, and also the fact that you can't just immediately get out of a case. Once you file that appearance, either another attorney has to come on or you, the court has to let you out, you know, pending um, you know, without, with certain exceptions. Uh, so they might just say, I can only afford so much. And then the question goes to, you know, is LAR the best form for them? Um, be, to become a limited assistance attorney, uh, it's governed by trial court rule 16. You have to complete a training. It's part of the uniform protocols for LAR training uh, as part of the mass trial courts. It is um, a self-reporting. So you used to have to send in the letter and uh, I think an affidavit of completion. You don't have to do that anymore. Uh, so that's, it's. I think it can be very helpful. And the next question is what kind of hearings should you really do LAR for? Or if a client comes to you and says, you know, I can only really afford you for a couple of hearings, what do you think is the best for me to um, hire an attorney for? You know, to me, it's always motion for temporary orders and the pretrial conferences. Uh, with the motion for temporary orders, that is typically going to be your first time in front of a judge. And you really, I think, should put your best foot forward. You want the pleadings to be accurate. You want an affidavit that is on point and concise. You And, you know, some clients, sometimes they want to write these 10, 15 page affidavits. I think some attorneys do too, when really you, I don't think judges want 
affidavits that are a novel. They really want to know what is important in front of me. They have 45, 55 cases on, and you don't have a ton of time with a judge. So you really want to give the judge a concise statement. And I think that is something that an attorney can help with as opposed to someone who's pro se. And to them, everything in this divorce and everything in a relationship is huge. And that's okay. I mean, that's it's their life. So it certainly makes sense that to them, everything is very important. Whereas attorneys, we can kind of sift through, okay, what is important for you emotionally? What is important for you psychologically versus what is important for the court to know? And again, you really want the court to focus on the actual issues that the court's going to find dispositive. It's also, I think, really important to have financial statements done correctly. You're going to have, typically, if there's a support aspect of this, be it alimony or child support, you're going to have an initial support order. And especially with a clientele who's every, you know, they're, they don't have as much disposable income, we really want to make sure that your parties are either receiving as much income as they need to try to meet their bills or that they are not overly spending in support and they can't afford it. And you're setting them up for a situation in which there are going to be multiple complaints for contempt or there's going to be a lot of litigation on the affordability of their support order. And the pro especially if you have one attorney who comes in with child support guidelines and you know maybe you go to probation, you come to an agreement you know, other people might not be writing these support guidelines. It might be one person. Uh, you know, I think pro se litigants can often feel overwhelmed at court. There are sometimes they do just come to an agreement, or sometimes there's an offer that's better for them, and they don't understand that it's a decent offer, and they go to the court, and they're going to get worse in front of the judge. And without an attorney there to really advise them, and to put them on the proper path, they can really start off the case really where they don't want to be. And when you go to, um, if you add, if, especially if there's an interplay, say the their you know, mid-level income, one person makes like 75 to 100. And you know that's for you know the entire family of five or six, but maybe now you have a Kavanaugh interplay. And you know, someone says, oh, well, they want support and alimony. Their friend recently told them they got both. If they go in there without an attorney and they just say they want both, the judge is going to want an analysis. The judge is going to want really numbers in front of her. And if we haven't provided the judge that information, it's going to be much more difficult to really for your client to get what they want. So I very much suggest that there would be, you know, if your client has limited funds, go in for the motion for temp orders especially because really at the pre-trials as well, a judge is going to sort of ask, how are things going? What is working? What isn't working? And if you set up a parenting plan where, you know, your parties have, your client has pretty significant parenting time, but maybe they want more, uh, you're going to have to, you, and you've already set them up, they've already set up that way. You know, judge is going to say, well, why should I be expanding this alternatively? You know, if your client agreed to too much parenting time at the beginning and the kids aren't doing well, the judge is going to say, well, why did you agree with this at the beginning? So you really do want to set up and put your client in the best position possible at the temp orders. Uh, the next hearing I think is more most important for uh, limited representation is the pretrial. Sometimes clients will often come to you because the temp orders didn't go the way they wanted or, you know, we've as we've said a lot of today, 
that the hearings in the court case has devolved. Things are getting worse. Things have not settled. I know a lot of clients just say, oh, I just want everything to settle. But they also tend to want things to settle just the way that they want them to. So if you are going to come in a pretrial conference with limited assistance rep, I don't think your LAR rep should start the night before at the pretrial. I really think it needs to start prior to the four-way conference or the three-way conference, uh, especially where you have not been on the case the entire time and you are trying to get up to speed. A settlement conference is a great way to figure out what exactly is going on in the case because hopefully you and the other side will be spending significant time with each other, discussing the issues, discussing you know, the parties, the children, the finances, and you will have you know, the benefit of a significant settlement conference to get yourself up to speed and to really learn the case in a way that someone who just hired you for the pretrial conference and you're going off of the pleadings and you know, an hour call with a client that's just not going to get you up to speed the way really sitting down and discussing the matter well. So if at all possible, and I understand that parties often come to you, you know, with not a lot of notice for the pretrial uh, conference, try to get there for the settlement. But also, if they haven't had the settlement conference yet and they're hiring you three days before, reach out to the other attorney and see if they'll agree to continue it to see if you can still benefit from that. Because... In, a, in situations like this, neither party tends to have a lot of money, and neither party necessarily will. And if you can get, if you ha, if you are lucky, and you have another party or another attorney who really has an eye for settlement. They hopefully would agree to um, maybe continue the pretrial, so you two can have or you all can have a real legitimate conversation to try to settle. And as we've said throughout this, and this isn't just for you know, I guess, mid-income clients, settlement is you know, typically the best way to go. And it's really important for you to be really mindful of that throughout your entire representation. Uh, the another, another reason that I think the pretrial conference is so important for having an attorney is there's the pretrial requires a lot of technical and uh, technical pleadings. You need a pretrial memo, proposed orders, child support guidelines, like I said, I mean, I know judges hate hearing Kavanaugh, so I apologize for that, Judge Gorman. And I know every attorney hates it too, but if you have an interplay of that, you really should have an analysis in there. You need to be listing all of your witnesses. I mean, I know everyone receives the pretrial order, but how many clients actually read it? I mean, respectfully, how many attorneys really read this now too, or we just assume we know everything that's supposed to go in the pretrial at this point in time? But, you know, you sit there in court and we all see parties who go up there and they're just talking to the judge and the judge doesn't have a pretrial memo in front of them. They don't have a proposed order or if they do, it's one that was hastily written in court that morning because the judge will not hear the case without it, but it says, give me custody. Well, that's not very helpful for the judge to see what's going on in the case. Um, but I think if a judge has really the benefit of an in-depth pretrial memo. And again, I understand that parties do have limited funds, but a pretrial memo that's one to two pages, I really don't think anyone finds overly helpful. Um, you know, some people write too much. I sometimes, I think, submit pretrial memos that are too lengthy, but you need to have something that's in-depth. 
and file ahead of time so the judges really can read it. I, you know, I think over the past few years, I've noticed judges really requesting pretrial memos and really pushing for the fact that they want their pretrial memos ahead of time. They want their pleadings ahead of time. So they have the benefit of reviewing it, letting them, you know, think on it. And additionally, if you have a case that's not heavily litigated, you know, this also lets the judge refamiliarize himself with the case. You know, you, if you have a case that, you know, the parties run once for temp orders, maybe they had a stipulation, you know, the judge hasn't seen them in four or five months, you know, six months, depending on what's happening. You know, you really do need to let the judge reacquaint themselves with the case. Because at this point in time, you know, everyone loves Zoom hearings, and I hated it because I missed the settling cases in the court. I miss settling it in the hallways. And I think we lost a lot when we were on Zoom and weren't able to do that. And if you give the judge the tools that she needs to give the parties advice, to give the parties the feedback that they require, um, then you can really sit down and have a meaningful settlement conversation and hopefully get the parties divorced, which again, saves them time and money, saves them frustration, saves them the anxiety. Um, like I said, you know, I told my client, I'm not always, I've told clients this, I'm not always sure how parties are able to necessarily co-parent after trial. You hear so many nasty things that cost them so much money. So if you really have a productive pre-trial conference, a productive pre-trial settlement, then you can um, resolve this. And also with pre-trials, if there are lots of times you'll see that parties have agreements and you know they listen to a judge and then they don't have merger language in their separation agreements. They, or it's incorrect, they'll merge you know, property, they'll merge liabilities. Uh, they forget to waive certain issues or they'll say there's no alimony, but a judge needs specific breakdowns. You can also be there to help the parties resolve that. Because often you see judges say, you know, they kick it, they kick it. And sometimes they go hire an attorney who can help you with resolve these issues. If you're already there, you can resolve this. Um, so the pros to me for LAR is it gives the judges professional pleadings. It allows the court to have arguments by seasoned attorneys, you know, or by attorneys who hopefully are, at least if they're not experienced, they're learning, and that's important for the court for you know for us to pass the torch to the next generation. And you also, you know, everything we discussed before about having an attorney represent you. Uh, my biggest concerns about LAR is, especially if people continuously hire the same attorney for LAR, they're in and out. There's no consistency. It's very hard to remain engaged in the case. It's hard for you to build rapport with the other attorney. It's hard for, I think, if, I, know, I think Judge Gorman correct if I'm wrong, it might be hard sometimes for the judges to have attorneys popping in and out. And to me, the, the biggest problem is you are getting your information often from the client about what happened in court. Now, certainly you can order the hearing, but if you don't have time for the hearing because you're hiring right before a case, you know, it is what the client is saying happened in court. And to me, that's always very dangerous to be listening to what the client said solely. Uh, one of my, you know, one time when I was in court and we were arguing disproportionate share and you know, the client wanted 70-30. The judge said, counsel, I've only once in my career given the 70-30 split. And we, we left the courtroom. The client was ecstatic. 
And she said, Evan, did you hear the judge is going to do a 70-30 split? They said, that's not how I heard that. I heard the judge say once in their career, they have done a 70-30 split. <laughs> I don't think that's what she meant, um, but that's that's how they interpret it. But conversely, you know, I had another really you know, tense custody case and the judge turned to the primary caretaker and said, I have only flipped custody. You know, I can count the number of times on one hand I flipped custody. I think you need to cut it out. And then when we left the courtroom, my client was a little dejected and said, oh, did you hear that? That judge never flips custody. He's not going to do this. I said, oh, no, wait. I understand that he said it was rare, but the judge was really annoyed very angry the other side, and that was a warning to them that their behavior continued. So again, those two situations, you had clients who really heard the judge in the, the opposite way that was meant to be heard. But if you're an LAR attorney and you weren't there the first time, you don't really hear that. So that's just, I would always suggest if someone's hired you and they, you know, they said what happened at the last hearing, order the transcript. I think it's what, $10 to order the transcript. So it is a cost to them. But if you're going to spend $10 and you know 20 minutes listening to a hearing, that is really going to save them as opposed to going down the wrong route for litigation because you and your client completely misunderstood the judge's directives and the judge's perspective. And then ultimately to me, I think there's really also a lack of rapport between you and your client. I think Sandy and Ellen did a great job discussing, you know, understanding your clients, understanding where they've come from, who they are, what really you know makes them tick. And if you are LAR and you come in for one day and say it's a pretrial, they might not trust you yet. You have you don't have that rapport. You haven't spent, you know, hours in the courtroom together over the course of a year. And they don't necessarily have that trust with you as they might have as you might have with an attorney or a client that you've spent years and years with or even a few months with. Um, so, you know, for example, I, you know, before four-way with one of my clients, I said, oh, I'm gonna represent, I'm gonna recommend this mediator. They're gonna say no, and they're gonna recommend this mediator. She said, how do you only just trust me? And we went in and we both re requested the mediators we wanted, same people I said. And then the client trusted me. You're completely going forward from that because something so silly as that, but she said, okay, Evan, you know, he knows what he's talking about. He knows the other attorney. He knows the judges. Um, and so then at the pretrial, when the judge was giving us some positive feedback and some feedback that we needed to resolve the case, we said, this is what I think we should do. You know, the client trusted me because we had that, even a foolish little, you know, kind of joke about who we were each going to fight um, for mediators. We had that background together. So again, with LIR, it's, it's kind of hard to avoid that, but I think the best way to, if you don't have the time to build the rapport, is to just be very honest with them during the intake process and really ensure that they do trust you and have, like Sandy said, that conversation with them. What Ellen said, you need to have that conversation with them so you have that build up right away um, and you are as much as you can before you go into court with them. because. If at the end of the day, your client doesn't trust you, I, are you really helping them at all? And, you know, I'm of the opinion, and I hope most attorneys are of the opinion, that advocating for your client and thus advocacy doesn't just mean arguing in front of the judge. It doesn't just mean arguing with the opposing counsel. It's a holistic type of experience. And 
alternating means effect, uh, communicating effectively with your client. You see, um, you know, and again, I think with you, some clients, you really need to kind of pick and choose where you get into litigation. In the middle of a divorce, someone might want to file a complaint for contempt. Uh, if you are in a, if there's an open case pending, and I think sometimes attorneys forget this, a complaint for contempt is an, its own new complaint. You don't have to go on there. If they can't afford you, you don't have to go to it. Oftentimes, I think it's more effective to um, to just consolidate the matters together so you can be there because you don't necessarily want something and the contempt to affect your case in chief. Um, but if they truly can't afford it, that is something to remember. I think the another question too, when you have a client um, is, and they want to come maybe hire you for something like contempt, is really seeing what, what the relief is. If they're a defendant, what is the other side asking for? Because if, you know, if, you're, if a client comes to you and say, I owe 5,000 back child support, um, I want to hire you. And you ask like, is there a reason you haven't paid it? And you know, there's no real good reason. I mean, we've all had clients who have not paid child support for very foolish reasons. Often they didn't feel like it. That's not a defense. So if they're going to give you $3,500, $4,000 to go to court to argue a payment schedule, that might not be their best, that might not be their best um, strategy. And the best strategy might be pay the other side what you'd pay me in a retainer. Now, certainly if they have been had a suspended sentence and maybe the judge has been very aggressive about this payment and there are, there are nuanced reasons why they couldn't pay, then okay, maybe that's stuff that you should come on, but do an analysis with them because you know I know that we all need to make, you know this is a job for us too, but ultimately we should try to be you know doing no harm to our clients and sometimes taking money for something we really can't help them on or isn't in their best interest. That's something we also need to, um, we need to contemplate. And, you know, just in a situation like that too, if you're honest with a client about you spending money on me right now for this is not the best idea. You might also have a client that is grateful who when there's a modification down the line or if the other side needs them, they said, well, that attorney wasn't trying to take me for a ride. That attorney wasn't trying to steal my money. They seem honest. I'll go hire them or I'll refer them to other people. So I think take a long-term goal too, not only ethically, but if you're really concerned financially, there's also a financial piece to that. Um, if you are the, another issue, if someone hires you for a complaint for contempt, reach out to the other side, just reach out to them and see if you can resolve things beforehand. You know, I know I might be an outlier on this, but I think a lot of attorneys, if things get resolved before court, we often waive our attorney's fees. So that saves the parties money too, going into court. Um, especially if you're a plaintiff attorney on this, just because someone is found guilty of contempt, even though the statute does say shall, judges do not always order attorney's fees. So there's some kind of cost, cost benefit analysis that you should always be doing with your clients. And that gets back to Sandy's point at the very beginning with you know managing their expectations. Um, but there is a cost benefit analysis to go in. Um, if you're going to start charge twenty five hundred for contempt, and your clients only owe two thousand dollars in legal and uh, back child support. I mean that that's an issue. 
uh, that you really need to discuss with your client about, you know, are you going to lose money um, if I, because even if I win, you're out if the court doesn't order fees. And I will say um, courts are pretty good um, about not necessarily using that as a defense, the length and time of filing. You know, I had someone once who said, oh, well, they sat on this lack of paying child support for four years. And I told the judge that this is the first time that even if um, my client didn't get attorney's fees, he'd walk out of here with more money than he spent. So he did wait a bit and you know, the judge didn't really seem to. I didn't really seem to care that much about that. Another something that you can do that's not necessarily full-blown representation is you can advise um, in the background. You can be a shadow attorney. It does not require an LAR form or even for you to be an LAR attorney. Um, a lot of the times, I think Ellen spoke with us, people go into mediation. They want someone to review it. It is important. It is okay for you to review anything for them, that is a great way for them to, I think mediation's great. Um, I think what Ellen and mediators do is a great job. So that is a great way for them to spend money uh, thoughtfully, some money responsibly, while still protecting their rights and making sure what they agreed to is not going to, is not going to really be harmful to them. And, um, or sometimes the clients might just want you to draft a motion for them help them draft motions because they really need to get their words onto paper. If you do something like that, you do have to write prepared with assistance of counsel, but um, you do not have to file your LAR appearance. It is not considered an LAR appearance or an appearance at all, even though you are still held to rule 10. Um, if clients often come to you and they might not have the cash in hand, but their spouse does, or there is an account that their spouse is in their spouse's sole control, yeah, you definitely need to speak about fees pendente lite. Uh, that will get you into the door. Uh, I have often seen attorneys, and I've done this too. I've done LAR just on the fees pendente lite. See if the judge will give you the money. See if the other side will. Um, I also think it is important to argue against the fees being an advance on your client's share of the estate. I lose this argument quite often, but if you have a client that Maybe they were a stay-at-home spouse. The other side had the income, had the retirement accounts that you are you're drawing this money from. Uh, if it's a, if it's an advance to your client, then they are gambling and they are arguing, they are litigating with their retirement assets. They do not have an income to help offset the fees, typically, or as much to offset the fees as the other side. So the other side is an advantage because they can litigate more because one, they have more income available to them. Two, they're not necessarily litigating solely with their retirement assets. And um, lastly, they typically will have the ability to earn more of an income down the line. And therefore, if they're earning more of an income, they can also put away more for retirement. So even if they have to dip into their retirement, it is not as much of a burden on them as it is for your client who may not have the same amount of um financial acumen, they may not have the same amount, uh, same ability to earn more income in the future. Sandy, how much time do I have left? I feel. Uh, well, wrap up. I could listen to you talk forever, but about four minutes. Okay, sorry. Um, so <laughs> okay. I don't really want to go into um, much into conciliation. I know Ellen did a great job with this, but I also just want to point out that I do think that the courts have recognized the import of 
ADR and other issues, they've implemented the Pathways program. It's fairly new. It is with an AJCM sitting down with the parties to try to resolve everything. That is a great, also affordable way to uh, litigate this case or to mediate the case that the parties cannot afford two attorneys and a conciliator, two attorneys and a mediator. Uh, the court's kind of putting them in a position where they don't have a choice. And I'm a big proponent of that right now. I would also say the bar associations, they do a great job offering free attorneys. These are, if clients have questions about it, these are skilled attorneys. I've never had a concern about going to mediation, a conciliation with the bar, with a bar, um, through the bar association thinking, oh, what am I getting myself into? I think the attorneys who volunteer for it are great. Uh, so if you have the, and use the resources of the court, the courts really are trying to provide as many resources as possible. So if you have parties and they can't necessarily afford a GAL, there typically are the court clinics or the probation department who will also do an investigation. What I tend to do is I do a motion for GAL appointment or the alternative to kick it to the court clinic. I think if you can't necessarily agree with the other side, give the judge the ability to make a choice for you then. Um, you know, that's what they're there for. Also, the judges will know kind of what they want to see on this case. If you present the case properly, you give all the facts that are needed. Um, often, sometimes a GAL request isn't the first thing the court hears. They might know the case fairly often. You know, I think the court can also make a determination as to whether or not they think this is more appropriate for the court clinic or for the GAL. The courts also tend to know how difficult it is if to get a state pay attorney, if that's where they're going. So they might just say, I, we can't get a state pay attorney. Do you know one? Um, I've had judges who have said, I'll give you a state pay attorney. Can, do you have a name for me who will take it? So if you are going to go to court on those motions, call your friends, see if you, they know anyone who are taking a state pay case, see if they are taking a state pay case. Uh, make Do your homework ahead of time. Because judges often are going to say, can you go figure it out? So if you've done your homework ahead of time, you're not wasting the court's time. You're not wasting your client's money by sitting in court for another hour for a second call because you didn't ask for, you didn't talk to any GALs first, just to see they had availability. Obviously don't discuss the case with them. You don't want to disqualify them, but just call, do you have an availability? Um, go for that. The court clinician, I think the court investigations, the probate departments do such a great job. Um, you know, I had one probation officer say that the parties were arguing about the exchanges. One was saying it were going well. One was saying it was going terribly. She went and super, she went and watched like three of them. They didn't know she was. She just went and watched them to help write her report. I, I will say I think that PO goes kind of above and beyond what a lot of them do. But you are getting um, a report. They are, they they work with the judges. They work with litigants every day, just as much as we do. Uh, they are in very competent hands, and. I think I just, I'm oh, sorry, Sandy, I think I'm out of time. Um, if I just really quickly, my big pet peeve, I think probably honestly the best practice tip I can give if you're trying to save time and money, call the other attorney, pick up the phone and just call them. 30 emails can be really a five minute phone call. 
I know there's that popular meme that says this could have been an email, this phone call could have been an email. I think most emails could be phone calls. Just really, you can 30 emails back and forth and you're trying to find it. I think a five minute call can resolve just as much as 30 emails back and forth. And it can also help narrow the issues. It can help come to agreements. If you have rational conversations with the other attorney, you know, if they know you, then they can resolve the case or this is how they get to know you. And if they see you both working towards settlement, um, hopefully that can really help parties. Because like Judge Gorman said, you come in with a partial stipulation, they will take these partial stipulations and let the other side, you know, let you litigate a narrow issue, save your client, saves your clients time and money, and also shows the judge that you're you're reasonable. You're trying to work towards something. And I think there's a lot of grace there as well. I think I'm out of time, Sandy. My apologies. Oh, okay. And I you want me to talk about trial a bit, so I do apologize. That's, that's okay. We we have a question period later. So uh, I don't know who was monitoring uh, the no questions. Questions? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, Judge Gorman, did you have anything you wanted to add? Wow. <laughs> so you know, Attorney Ballard, you know, Attorney Lundy hasn't appeared in front of that much, but Attorney Ballard hasn't appeared in front of me more. And I must tell you that you know some of the things he said that just really hit on point. You know, you have to know your judge, you have to know your mediator. It's so important. We're all so different. Just as he presented his his talk here, he also presents in court. He stays very calm, very presented. You have to know it's your reputation, right? So the face you put on to us, the things that you tell us, you know, is what we're going to remember. You know, you talk, just quickly, just you'll know, file file a motion to withdraw. Don't just file it and go away. I need to see it. I need it to be presented, especially if there's not counsel on the other side. Don't come in just before a trial and say, oh, I need to withdraw. Money ran out because I'm not going to let you out. You're going to the trial with no money. You know, um, the um, pre-trials, I know at least one of my AJCMs is on this uh, the, in the background here. And uh, pre-trials, you need to read the court orders. You need to read the rules, right? My court order says you need to have your memo three days in advance. You have to have a four-way. You have to have a financial. You have to have a um, proposed uh, order. You know, beginning sometime in January, you don't come in with those. You might be having a nice day elsewhere besides my courtroom because I read, my colleagues and I, we read these things the day before, the night before. So when we come in, we can have a substantive conversation. As Evan said, you know, it's useless if we don't know what's going on, right? I mean, you know, we will deal with the specifics of, you know, your case if we have a specific city of case. Um, the financials are the, one of the biggest things that come back to haunt you if you go to trial. At cross-examination, they are the things that the other attorney picks up and starts picking at. Well, Judge, on February 14th, they wrote a financial saying they made $1,000, but then in April, they said, you know, it has to be accurate. You have to spend time on it. It's probably one of the most important uh, documents that you um, have. You know, recognize the good and bad of your client, right? If your client has some bad things in their past, in their life that's going to affect this, you can make it look good to me. You can make it look that they're recognizing what their issues are, but they have addressed them. They've done something about it. Don't ignore it and have the other side throw it at me because, you know, then it look like you're trying to hide something. Um, you know, I just uh, used to say it was a great, um, great you know, speech and uh, talk and you just need to be, accurate, know it's your reputation, and know that you're trying to do the best for your client with honesty and truth, and follow the rules, or else you won't be seeing me or any other judge. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I think we're going to take a little uh, break now. I believe it's a 10-minute break. Is that right? 
and then we'll hear from the, the financial people. Thank you.